0: This morning's readings are taken from 1 Samuel and we'll start at verse 4 sorry chapter 4 verses 1 to 11 and we'll then continue at chapter 7 verses 1 to 12 and can be found on page 274 of your bibles. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. We are in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Elazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. It was a long time, twenty years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all of the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and Asherahs and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Asherahs and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of this, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, then he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. When Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were rooted before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the, ah, this is the word of the Lord.
1: This morning we've got quite a challenge. Um, we could have, Graham could have gone on and kept reading. We've got uh, five chapters in 1 Samuel to cover this morning. Chapters 4 to 8. Um, and throughout those five chapters, hopefully what we'll see is... People not doing so well when it comes to God. Hopefully what we'll see is the danger of people domesticating God. The danger of people liking to domesticate God. And that's not just something that happened back there, but we can see that today as we look around society, can't we? A danger that people like to domesticate God. They they take God and, and they kind of put him in a box to suit their needs and their desires. They like to take God and make him convenient for them they like to take God and limit him we can see this in different ways we see it maybe most when it comes to Christmas people love Christmas they want Christmas but when it comes to God well we'll maybe take him and we'll put up with a kind of nice sweet baby in a manger and we like that kind of scene that's nice but we don't want anything more than that right and yet, as we look at these chapters, we'll see that it's not just kind of the people out there who like to domesticate God, but it happens with the people of the people who are looking to follow God, God's people themselves. And so today, the danger is we see that it's not just those out there that like to domesticate God, but it can creep into the church as well. We take the bits that we like about God and kind of leave to the side the bits that we're not too fond of. We look to, to shape him and, and make him be convenient for our lives. We put him in a box and we bring him out for when it works for us. I wonder how you might ever be in danger of domesticating God. Maybe happy to give him your Sunday mornings, a bit of time each day in the morning. But when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're at college, when you're with friends, well, that's, that's my time, Right? Or maybe it's when you hear of something that God calls you to do in, the, in terms of the way that we're to live our lives. And, and you can find yourself kind of filtering it with what the world might say about that thing. Or what your friends might say about that thing. Or even what you want to say about that thing. We can be in danger of domesticating God. Often in, in life, we can use the phrase light to mean something that's not serious. So we talk about keeping conversation light, or um, taking something lightly, or being light-hearted. And so similarly, we can do that with God. We just treat him lightly. And yet, in contrast, if, if something is heavy or weighty, that can mean that something is really serious. We can have weighty ideas, or we can have a heavy heart, or we can experience a heavy blow. And it's similar in the Bible. In the Old Testament, when the Bible talks about glory, or God's glory, the Hebrew word for it is just one uh, one letter different to the word for heavy or weighty. So the word for glory is kabod, and the word for heavy is kabet, I've got no idea how you sign that. I'm really sorry, but um, give it your best shot. There you go. Um, Look, the glory of God, the Bible wants to say, it's, it's his weight. It's his substance. And of course, God can't be weighed literally. What the Bible's trying to say is, look, the glory of God is something to be taken seriously. There's a heaviness, a weightiness to it. And we see that throughout our chapters this morning. Time and again, this exchange between the glory of God and the heaviness of God comes through. Last week, we were introduced to Samuel. Samuel's a good person for the people of God, someone for them to listen to. And yet, right at the start of our passage this morning, chapter four, verse one is the last that we see or hear from Samuel for three chapters. And it's significant because those three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, are not good chapters for the people of God. And look, as we go through these five chapters, chapter 4 to 8, hopefully we'll see a sweep of the direction of travel we're going through. And of course we won't be able to cover every detail, but we'll be stopping at certain moments to see what is going on here. How do the people of God, how do God's enemies domesticate God, take him lightly? And how do we see, in contrast, the glory of God, his weight, his substance, how seriously he is to be taken? So let's get going then. And first we're going to see two dangers of domesticating God. Here's the first one. The danger of using God in chapter 4. The danger of using God. As Samuel leaves the scene, Israel find themselves in a battle with the Philistines at the beginning of chapter 4. And the battle isn't going well for Israel. And so they respond, verse 3. When the soldiers return to camp, the elders of Israel ask, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. They kind of recognize the Lord's work, but instead of crying out to him for help, something that Rob mentioned right at the beginning of the service, instead of crying out to him for help or seeking wisdom from their leader, Samuel, well they come to their own conclusion. Of course, this is what we're missing. We need the Ark of the Covenant with us, right? Now this Ark of the Covenant, this is a a small, sacred, gold-covered, portable box. You can see a picture of it on the screen. And normally it would have been found right at the center of the temple, or the tabernacle, throughout the Old Testament. Right at the center, behind a veil, in an area where no one could go. An area that was called the Holy of Holies. And the Ark was a reminder of three big things. First, in the ark were the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments. And this was a reminder of God's covenant or God's promises with his people. How he has made a promise with them and how he calls them to live in response to those promises. Second, in the ark, in the box, there was a jar that held manna bread. And this was a reminder of the people of God's miraculous provision for them. When they were wandering in the desert, it points them back and reminds them of how God provides for them. And then, third, the big thing about the ark was it was said to be where God dwelt. It was a reminder of God's presence. That where the ark was, that's where God is. And so, when the ark is with his people, God is with his people. And so the people of Israel here in chapter 4 are thinking, well, if that's where the ark is and that's where God is, if, if we need a reminder of God's promises and we need a reminder of God's provision, well, let's get it. Let's take it out with us. That's what we'll do. That's what will make the difference. And then verse 5, all Israel get excited. Verse 7, all Philistine gets afraid. And what's the result? Verse 10, so the Philistines fought and the Israels were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost thirty thousand foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phineas, died. What? That's not meant to happen. What's gone on? Well, as we look back to verse three, whilst it looks good, getting the ark out, well, actually they're just using the ark. Almost using God as some kind of lucky charm. Looking to almost twist God's arm. That's not faith. That's superstition. Apparently in some uh, many countries around the world still today, uh, a rabbit foot is meant to bring good luck, to carry it around with you. And so it's led to one person talking about this chapter and saying what the Israelites had was simply a rabbit foot theology. Just a lucky charm theology. Bringing out this ark as a kind of magic, superstitious kind of trophy that they think will guarantee them victory. And we're given a hint in verse 4 that it won't turn out well. Do you notice who came out with the ark in verse 4? Hophni and Phineas, The disgrace priests we heard about last week in chapter 2. You see at the start of chapter 4 in verses 1 and 2, the Israelites go out without God and lose. And then in verse 10 and 11, the Israelites go out with God, they think, and still lose. Because God won't be used as a lucky charm. God isn't there to be used as a lucky charm. I wonder how we might be tempted to do that. Someone this week I heard said that it's a bit like treating God like a waiter. You kind of enjoy your meal, you go out for a nice meal, and most of the time you just enjoy the waiter. But then when something comes up or when you want something, well that's when you kind of click your fingers and usher him or her over to your table. The waiter doesn't sit with you, they're not part of your meal or your evening, but you just call him over when it's convenient, when something's needed. I wonder if you can ever find yourself treating God a bit like that. Enjoy our lives like we're enjoying a meal. But when something comes up, when we feel like we need him, well, that's when we kind of call him over to help. Maybe a tough situation at work or at home or interview or an exam coming up and you kind of think, come on, God, just, just help me out just here. Maybe, maybe it can be an attitude to church. Uh, look God if I give over to you my Sundays well well then I'll deserve something back at some point almost like cash in the bank for when I want to to bank it back at some point God says he won't be used like a lucky charm and here for Israel it results in disaster there's judgment on the people the ark is captured Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What we were told would happen back in chapter 2, verse 34. And then at the end of chapter 4, in verses 21 and 22, we get this account of Phineas's son, who is born after he dies. And Phinehas' wife names the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. A name that is the constant reminder of this account, that the glory has gone, has left Israel. And so we see in this chapter a danger of people thinking that they can just use God for their own convenience when they need him. And so as we get to the end of chapter 4 and go into chapter 5, the ark is now in the hands of God's enemies. It's on enemy turf. And so what about them? How how are they going to treat him? well in chapters 5 6 and 8 we see the second danger the danger of not taking God seriously the danger of not taking God seriously let's take those chapters in turn chapter 5 we see the first warning don't have rival affections don't have rival affections the ark is taken into enemy territory and, and so we think is is under enemy control right and yet there's a reminder through this chapter of the glory or the heaviness of God. In verse 6 and verse 7 and in verse 11 it speaks of the heavy hand of God. Because as we see God's still in charge. And first we see this in, in almost the comical series of events in verses 1 to 6. Have a look down as we look, look through it. The Philistines take the ark, they capture it and take it to Ashdod. They carry it into Dagon, their God's temple. They set it beside Dagon, almost as a way of saying, here is the defeated God, let's lay him before our victorious God Dagon. And they go to bed, they wake up. And before they've even had time to start their Ix, they find Dagon fallen, his face on the ground, literally bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant, bowing down before God. So what do they do? Well, they pick up their God and they put him back. And don't miss the kind of the, the humor and the irony in this sentence. Here is their supposed great God, Dagon. And what do they have to do? Well, they have to take him and put him back in his place. They get on with their day. They go to bed later that evening. And the next morning, he's fallen over again. And this time, his head and his hands have broken off. It's comical. And yet, it's so serious. So serious, in fact, that the Philistines cannot forget it. Verse 5. Since that day, it's affected the way that they walk into their temple. You see, even on enemy territory, our God does not need to be looked after. In fact, their God, Dagon, falls over in the presence of God. Their God needs to be helped back up just to fall over again. Here is the so-called powerful Dagon, their God of grain and fertility. And yet, in the presence of the God of the universe, well, is no match. It needs to be helped to his feet. And sadly, chapter 5, it's just the start for the Philistines as we work through the rest of chapter 5. The art moves from place to place. Each place is terrified of the results or the effect of God being present with them. And so moves them on from place to place. And as it goes from place to place, it brings judgment and punishment everywhere it goes. From Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. It's horrible for them. As they don't take him seriously. You see, God doesn't need his people to look after him. Even in foreign territory, God can handle himself. Don't have rival affections. And then second, as we go into chapter 6, we see the challenge to not underestimate God's holiness. Because sadly, judgment doesn't just fall on God's enemies. In chapter 6, the Philistines have had enough. They need to get rid of the ark. They send him back to Israel. And as the ark returns to Israel, the people of God rejoice. Chapter 6, verse 13. They offer burnt offerings. They make sacrifices. Chapter 6, verse 15. And yet, verse 19, we get this horrific verse. God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death. Because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the lord had dealt them we see the weight of god again that heavy blow why what's happened well we're told they looked into the ark going directly against the instructions back in numbers chapter four of how to look after how to treat the ark being told not directly not to look into the ark or you'll die because god wants to stress the holiness of god that is the 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 difference between god and us that he is totally different to us he's holy he's totally pure totally set apart he is totally different so cannot be in the sight of a sinful people it's a bit like when you wake up in the morning and you turn that light on or you pull the curtains back maybe in a few weeks as it gets lighter in the morning and the light just floods in and, and you're kind of blinded by the brightness. Well, here God is so bright, so pure, so holy, so different to us that we cannot stand the sight. So we have to shield our eyes and yet these people don't take him seriously. You see, when we can be in danger of domesticating God, we forget his holiness. We forget how different he is to us. We bring him down to our level and we treat him lightly. Almost God becomes our pal. We become chummy with him, as if we just hang out with him. And of course, God is relational. God is intimate with us. He wants to be our father who loves us and cares for us. But at the same time, he is the God of heaven. The ruler over all things and so there is right we are right to have a, a right awe of him i once heard it said remember god is almighty not almighty and so don't underestimate god don't underestimate his holiness and then if we flick quickly to chapter 8 we see the third challenge in this point of don't follow the crowd." In chapter 8, we see how the people respond to Samuel and reject his leadership and say, we want a king. And we want a king because we want to be like the nations around us. We see they have a king and that looks attractive and we want that. And verse 7, God says to Samuel, look, don't take it personally. It's not a rejection of you, it's a rejection of me. And even throughout chapter 8 of the warning of what this king is going to be like the people of israel are insistent they look at the world around them they look at the nations around them they look at the crowd around them and says we want to be like them we want to follow their ways we want a king just like them rather than taking god seriously we see the danger of not taking god seriously don't have rival affections don't underestimate god's holiness don't follow the crowd and if you flip back to the end of chapter 6, we're left with a big question, verse 20. The people look around and ask themselves, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? How on earth can we stand before this holy God? wonder if you've um, ever read the book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, a brilliant book. There's a wonderful moment in the book near the beginning when the children are with the beavers and the beavers are telling the children about Aslan. Aslan, they say, is the king of the world. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And so Lucy replies, a lion? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Of course he's not safe. But he is good. The Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe, a great book written by a Christian, C.S. Lewis. And within it, you see the themes of the gospel coming through with Aslan, the great lion, representing God. And so C.S. Lewis wanting to make the point, look, God isn't safe in the sense that we can just kind of cuddle him like a soft toy. No, he's holy, but he is good. And so as we get into chapter 7, as Samuel returns onto the scene, so we see the need to remember God's mercy as he shows his goodness after three chapters of silence after absence from Samuel he's back and as he returns so hope returns to the people of God and so as he speaks thankfully the people listen to him he starts by calling the people to repentance and repentance not just with words but repentance with your whole heart verse three He says, if you are returning to the Lord, return to the Lord with all your hearts, rid yourselves of the foreign gods, the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord. Serve him only. Samuel calls for a genuine repentance from the people to confess their sins and says, look, it's more than just the words you say. It's, it's a heart thing. It's not just mind or words. And because it's a heart thing, because it grabs your heart, it affects your whole life. It results in action. Get rid of the foreign gods around you. Serve only the Lord. And wonderfully, the people listen to him, verse 4. The Israelites put away their bars, their astroths, and serve the Lord only. We get this wonderful moment in verse 6 when the people of God come together and confess together corporately. It shows the significance of doing that, the importance of doing that as church together. You see, repentance is words. It is confessing to the Lord. But it's not just words. It's so much more than that. It's action too. It's sacrificial. It's a call to get rid of all those foreign gods, those idols, the things that attract you and and, and attract your heart. It's a call to turn away from them. To turn away from the culture of the world around us, the gods, the idols, the world tells us to follow and to worship. It's a call to love and to serve and to worship God only. It's a heart thing. It's a redirecting, a returning to God, our our hearts towards God. It's a fleeing from sin and from temptation. I wonder what that might look like for you this morning. And what's the result then? Verse 7. Feels like we've been here before. We began with a battle in chapter 4. We end with a battle in chapter 7. And there's similarities and differences. In chapter 4, Israel were confident because of their rabbit foot theology, theology, having the ark with them. And the Philistines were afraid. This time it's roles reversed. The tables have turned. The Philistines appear confident. Israel are afraid. And how do Israel respond now in their fear? Finally, they get it. Verse 8. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Finally, they cling on to and depend on God in faith and so call out to him for his help and his mercy and his goodness. And so could you imagine the scene in verse 10? That day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic they were rooted before the Israelites. Don't mess with the Lord, he says. He's greater than you can imagine. Don't try and use him. He's holier than you can imagine. Don't try and box him off and handle him. He can look after himself, whether he's in enemy territory or on home turf. And yet he always offers mercy. He always offers a way back. And so remember his mercy. And Samuel finds a way to do that, verse twelve. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer came up in the defeat and the disaster of chapter four. How things have changed now. Ebenezer is a way of remembering. How the Lord has helped his people. A way of remembering God's mercy. As we finish, I wonder if you remember, if you were with us last week, Rob's kind of diagram for the series. Here it is, nice and simple. Um, And I wonder if you've seen how we see that a number of times in these chapters this morning. Chapter 4, God brings the kind of Israelite pride from top down to bottom. As they think they can just use God. Chapter 5. God brings the Philistine pride down. As they think they can just set him before their God. Chapter 7. He brings Israel back from defeat. Up into victory. And yet we also see it in these chapters for God himself. Chapter 4. God is brought down. It looks as if he's defeated. Taken away into enemy territory. And yet that bringing down of God is actually his means of victory as he comes up again. And so these arrows not only are useful for Samuel, but it points forward to an ultimate display of this. Over 10 centuries after these events, we see the apparent defeat, the bringing down of a young man nailed to a cross and dying. Not just brought down and defeated by the human powers of the day... But also seemingly brought down and beaten by the spiritual powers. The devil having, he thought, beaten this so-called son of God. And yet, in his bringing down, well that is the means of him defeating Satan. That is the means of him being brought up in victory. Not just for him, but for every single person who believes and trusts in him. And so, for Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, if you trust in the Lord Jesus as Saviour, the cross is our Ebenezer, where we can look back and say, so far the Lord has helped us. And so, as we go forward, whatever troubles we might find, whatever problems we feel overwhelm us, so we can look to the cross. We look back and see the cross, our Ebenezer, and see how God has helped us thus far. And so it can have confidence as we look to the future that he will continue to help us. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this picture of how great and glorious you are. That you are not a God that we can just box off and use whenever we want. That you are so holy and different to us. And yet you are a God who is good and merciful. And that you promise to help us when we call on you. And so as we see apparent defeat, so we see that in defeat you are able to use it for victory. And so we see that wonderfully at the cross as Jesus looked defeated and yet in his defeat won victory for himself and for every single person who trusts in him. Help us to continually trust in you, to never domesticate you, but to continue to call out to you and to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.